українське незалежне радіо. How are you? Hi. Hi, Andy, thanks for joining me. Uh, you're you're an immigration lawyer in two countries, right? Right. I'm a, a member of the bars of New York and California in the United States and Ontario and BC in Canada and I do US and Canadian immigration law. Andy Semutyuk, am I pronouncing it correctly? Yeah, Semutyuk, Andri in Ukrainian, I go by Andy in English, but yeah, I think you probably would know why. Yeah, I've, I've anglicized Danilo Terlecki to Dan Terlecki. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. it suits my purposes. Yeah, it's, it's a hard world out there for, you know, in the Anglo world, and, uh, you know, each one has to figure out how, how they're going to cope with it. This is my, my way of coping. When I write books, I write Andri Semutyuk, you know, as an author, but yes. otherwise, you know, in English parlance, I'm Andy Semichuk. So. You're uh, bilingual too, aren't you? Yes, of course. I speak Ukrainian and English. So you've got your 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 brain in two worlds, your your worldview in two sp spots, and including your name. <laughs> you yeah, I've tried to, you know, get get into some other languages. It's not going that very well. A little bit of Spanish, a little bit of French. Polish, Russian, all that, but you know, I'm just not conversant in any of What do the Ukrainians say? Uh, right? Uh, the more languages you know, the more well-rounded person you are. Yeah. So you passed the bar in New York. You're you're in Toronto, but you passed the bar in New York years ago, right? Yeah, back in 1977, I guess it was. It's quite a quite a while ago. So you had to cross the border, I'm sure. You were an immigrant yourself to do that. <laughs> you know, I, I was a unique case. In fact, I was a uh, sort of a, a, a precedent case. They had to convene the Committee on Character and Fitness and have a hearing in, with me to decide whether they would allow me into the bar there because the issue was over the Commerce Clause in the Constitution of the United States and uh, someone from outside the state coming in and becoming a lawyer in the state, uh, an attorney in New York State. And they ruled that I had the right to do that. And as a result, I became. Uh, oh, that's interesting uh, because you uh, sensibly you would need the right to work in the place where you were looking for the license to do it, right? Right, right. Yeah. So uh, that's how it worked out for me. But it was a touch and go. I had to actually appear in a library with, you know, like, I think it was about, I don't know, it seemed like about two dozen, uh, you know, high profile lawyers or whoever it was that was the bar committee there. And they interviewed me with uh, cameras and uh, microphone and all that, and then made a decision after I left, uh, authorizing me to be, become a New York lawyer. So what did you tell the border guard when you were crossing into New York State from Ontario <laughs> that you were going? To well, that's a story and a half. Uh, as I was going after I got uh, called, no, wait. Yeah, after they approved me for a call to the bar, I was on the way to being called in New York State. And uh, I had a green card in my wallet from previously but it was expired. <clears throat> and uh, as I was crossing into the United States, I came as a visitor. I didn't come, I didn't show my green card. Um, and the border patrol officer, the US Customs and Border Protection officer, didn't like what was going on because at that time, I had a, a driver's license which was a chauffeur's driver's license. And the reason I had that was because when I got my driver's license, like I, this is a long story, but the short version is I worked for the World Congress of Free Ukrainians in New York at the United Nations and for Svoboda, the newspaper at the UN as a journalist. And while I was there, I wrote the New York State Bar exam. So, uh, while I was working for the World Congress, I got myself a driver's license, Manhattan driver's license. And when I passed the exam, the guy asked me, well, do you want an ordinary or do you want a chauffeur's license? And I said, well, what's the difference? He says, you pay a dollar, you get a dollar more, you get a chauffeur's license. So I said, sure, okay, I'll take it. 
And I had that driver's license at the border when I was coming into the United States. And he thought I was driving taxis. And he was very suspicious. So he asked me, what am I going to do in the United States? I told him I'm going down to be called to the New York car. And he said, no, you're not. You drive taxis in the United States. I can see it right here. I said, no, 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 really, honest. I'm going to be called to the bar. He said, no, you're not. I'm taking your green. I'm taking your, your... now. Uh, he said, can I see what's in your wallet? I said, you have the right to do that? He said, yeah. So I had to pull out my wallet and he found this old green card in there. Now he was really suspicious. You know, what is this green card doing in the wallet? I said, well, it's it's an old green card. And I wanted to ask a friend of mine who was Starosoyski, Volodymyr Starosoyski in New York, who's a green, uh, who's an immigration lawyer. I was going to ask him, is this still valid? Can I still get this uh, green card reenacted or renewed? Uh, and the guy says, no, I'm taking this green card and I'm not letting you in. And that oh, was a mess. But anyway, I had to go through the embassy in Ottawa, the U.S. embassy in Ottawa to ultimately tell this guy, let this guy in, he's going to be called to the New York bar. And I got in. So, oh, so while you were still at the border crossing, you were able to get somebody on the phone? To not right out? away. He stopped me, blocked me, took my green card, and it yeah. took me about three, four days of effort to get the embassy to call the guy down at the Pearson Airport Oh. To say, okay, let this guy through. He's going to be called to the bar because the guy didn't believe me. Wow. So anyway, that's all. That's it. That shaped my view of what I'm going to do with my life, though. Because from that day on, I decided, you know, I'm going to work in this area, and uh, you know, maybe I'll help other people with immigration law. And here I am, 40 years later. Yeah, it's amazing how those uh, experiences can form your future. So. Um, obviously, we know now that uh, what's happening in Ukraine is is astonishing. I mean, to say the least, there are no words. Um, there are reports coming in that uh, that Putin's uh, army and uh, air force are targeting civilians as they flee violence, and there are reports that a million people have already crossed the border trying to get away from the war in Ukraine. Um, you're an immigration lawyer in two countries. You got to know two sets of, of rules and regulations. I, I want to talk to you generally about what the situation is in both the United States and Canada. And sure. I'll, you know, since you're since you're Canadian and since you're in Toronto, I guess we'll we'll give uh, your home turf uh, home field advantage and start there. Okay. Tell us what's going on well, in Canada. Sorry. Sure. Well, let's start with a little background. Not since World War II have there been so many refugees in Europe. Like we're talking more refugees than the refugees. Well, it looks like it's, it's ballooning into a refugee crisis more serious than the World War II, post-World War II DP crisis that was around that, that a lot of our you know, parents, grandparents or whatever went through, meaning Back then, there were millions of people in refugee, well, DP camps back then, displaced persons camps. And they had to be sponsored to come over to uh, North America or to Australia or, or Argentina or wherever you have it. Now, there's, according to the most recent estimate that I got from the UN, was uh, 1.5 million refugees, Ukrainians, in uh, Eastern Europe, outside of Ukraine. But I can easily see, and I wrote an article for Forbes, I write uh, uh, Forbes articles on immigration. Uh, before this crisis broke out, I, I quoted uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, I believe it was, or Defense, one or the other. Uh, I guess it was the Minister of Defense who said that uh, he was projecting that somewhere between three and five million people would become refugees if Ukraine was invaded. And that projection looks pretty promising in terms of what's going to happen unless the war can be stopped. Well, we're almost more than a third of the way there, and it's been a week. Yeah. And by the way, I'm going to take a, a link, I'm going to put a link to that article below the, the description of this video. Good, good. So that's the deal. Now the question is, what are we going to do with this magnificent number of people 
and how are we going to resettle them and you know make something out of this not to mention the destabilization of europe that it could cause we're early in the game right now the world is with us there's a lot of goodwill they're helping this is a moment when we're seeing the worst of humanity but also the best of humanity in terms of the crisis in ukraine the bombing and the stuff you talked about and the best of humanity in terms of the response of poles uh, hungarians uh, the baltics uh, all of western europe not to mention the united states canada and other countries uh, you know and israel and everybody backing what's going on and helping the people uh, in this humanitarian crisis it's tremendous tremendous world support for ukraine so that's the context and now we got to talk in our conversation here about what can be done in terms of ukraine ukrainian immigrants to canada and ukrainian immigrants to the united states let's start with you canada as you suggested let me give you a little rundown uh, the basic uh approach i advocate at this moment is come to canada as a visitor particularly if you have a family member who can sponsor you to come as a visitor to canada um, the current uh, rules for visitors coming to canada uh, are the same as they are for anybody else in, uh, coming to canada ukrainians are no different at this moment other than there's been an expression of sympathy and the desire to expedite anybody who's applying for visitors visas to Canada by the government. Uh, there, there are some uh, touchy points. A visitor is someone who comes to a country, but then leaves the country at the end of the period of authorized stay. And we're addressing that issue by saying, if you're a visitor to Canada, you're Ukrainian, it's likely you're coming temporarily because you want to return back to Ukraine once things stabilize. And so you're going to say, I'm coming for the time being to Canada. And because I have a family member or close associate who is going to support me while I live there for the time being until things settle, and then I will return back to Ukraine. Well, you bring up an interesting point, if I can ask you a question about sure. that. So I don't want to skip ahead too far because I, I want to ask you when we get to the United States, um, I have a feeling that you might be talking about similar routes to the United States. It's going to be very similar to what I'm talking about. Right. So I, I just want to bring up an interesting point. You're saying that the intention of the immigrant or the person traveling as a visitor to the United States or Canada, in this case, Canada, is with the intention of eventually returning home. Now, there's some policy changes that were executed by the president recently that we'll get to in the United States. Yes. And I yes. want to sort of, I want to maybe dive a little bit into that when we get there about, you know, yes. making sure that people know or have accurate information about, about how to do that. Yeah, that's called TPS, and we're going to come to that. Okay. But uh, uh, what I'm talking about for Canada right now, this area that we're talking about right now, identical in the US. The, the, the requirements are the, the same, and I'll just cover them briefly for US in a moment. But uh, so the key element is going to be this issue of, oh, do you have intent to stay here permanently? Because if you do, you can't be a visitor. So we have to address that by saying, yeah, well, I'm coming as a visitor because it's my intention to return home. And the authorities, there's great goodwill right now in the authorities of both countries. And I think they're they're ready to accept uh, a fairly reasonable request of a visit uh, with the idea that the person is intending to go back. They're not going to go crazy on us. So now, unfortunately, in the U.S. situation, um, recently there have been a few denials by U.S. officials of people who have come and applied as visitors. But it's likely because these people did not know about this thing we're talking about right now, which is saying something about, well, I've got a life back in Ukraine. I've got a house, I've got a wife, I've got a, or a husband, I'm sorry, or I've got a dog, or I've got a, a job, or I've got a, you know, whatever it is that uh, 
I'm looking to return to. If you don't have any of that, then the chances of getting in could be, uh, you know, turned down. You could get turned down. So, so they want to look as though, I mean, the, obviously they're they're doing this in good faith, but they want to show that they they don't have an intention of overstaying the visa. In fact, they, and they right. don't have an intention of abandoning whatever it is that they left behind. That's a very good way of putting it. I would put it this way, like like you just said, but a little. I'm going to word it the same way, but a little different. They're going to abide by the law. Whatever the law requires, they will abide by it. But they're asking to come as a visitor for the time being. Now, the key is there's got to be a family member, preferably a family member, even a distant one, a cousin, uncle, aunt, or whatever. Better if it's a father, husband, wife, you know, son, daughter. But whatever it is, there's got to be a family member inviting them to come in. Because that family member can say, look, I'll give this person a place to stay. I'll look after them. I'll provide them food and shelter. You know, I'll look after their expenses while they're here. And that will relieve the American or the Canadian government official who's looking at the application from any apprehension about, well, this guy's going to show up. And then what? You know, right straight on the welfare, right? They don't want that. So... This is, these are the circumstances right now, both for Canada and the US in terms of visiting. And that is the quickest way for anybody from Europe to get into Canada or the US. I recommend it. And these are not refugees, right? This is not a visa for refugees. Okay. The people are all refugees as we understand them in common uh, parlance but they're not a refugee claimant for purposes of coming to the country. Do not claim refugee status on arrival. I, I, I would advocate against that. It's complicated. It's a developing situation in terms of Ukraine. Uh, but I, listen, you can claim refugee status once you're inside the country as well. It's not like you're precluded from claiming refugee status. There are benefits to refugee claims that are not available to work, uh, ordinary visitors. In the Canadian case, the government has agreed that if the person comes as a visitor, they will be eligible to get a work permit. So that's another reason why you should come as a visitor. But you won't get health care, which is something you would get if you're a refugee claimant as well as a work permit if you're a refugee claimant in Canada. In the American situation, there's no right to a work permit. There's no right to any health care. If you're coming as a visitor, you got to look after yourself, buddy, you know, or someone's got to look after you. Um, so be it. Okay. So anyway, thank you for allowing me to sort of uh, uh, kind of skate over this area. But that's the key message I want to leave with people is, Now's the time to apply for a visitor's visa to Canada or the United States. And if you'll allow me that, just give me a few more minutes. I want to explain particularly why now is the time. Uh, even though, for example, in Canada, the Canadian government has announced that it's going to relax the restrictions on visitors coming to Canada. And in about two weeks or so, we're going to hear all the details about a relaxed visitor's visa option for people. But, but despite that fact, I think it's important both for Canada and the United States for people to apply now and not later for uh, several reasons. Number one is the world is on our side. Right now, Ukrainians are well-received anywhere. There are some criticism. There's a building backlash against Ukrainian uh, refugees uh, by other people who are saying, I've been, listen, I've been in the line for two, four, three, four, five years waiting. Why should these guys be able to get right through there right away? You know, or I'm from Palestine. You know, we've been mistreated all this time. Why should these people get the permission to, you know, stuff like that? And there's some, you know, those are not unreasonable uh, criticisms. Although uh, just the case, if I may make it for the Ukrainian side, Forgive me, my phone is ringing. I'm not going to answer it. Okay, there we go. Uh, briefly, the 
argument for why Ukrainians are entitled now or should be treated better than say some of the others at the moment are, there's two of them. One is Ukraine is being attacked by a nuclear power after having surrendered its nuclear weapons to that power on the promise that the, so, you know, the Russians would respect its integrity, its, uh, its sovereignty and territorial integrity. And on the assurances made by the United States, the UK and lesser, but still assurances of France and China that, uh, that uh, this was in Budapest, that if Ukraine surrendered 5,000 nuclear weapons, both strategic and tactical nuclear weapons, that Ukraine's sovereignty would be respected. And now they're being crushed by that nuclear power. There's no other uh, uh, community of refugees who can say that, that's number one. And number two, for 75 years, Ukrainians in the United States and Canada and elsewhere were cut off from their family members in the Soviet Union, unable to sponsor any of them because of the Iron Curtain. And we were severely disadvantaged in terms of being able to bring over close relatives for that period of time. The doors were closed, not for everybody else, but for Ukrainians and other Eastern Europeans who were behind the Iron Curtain. So uh, this is an opportunity to at least catch up a bit on that loss of 75 years worth of sponsorships uh, of family members uh, and by and large, the people who are coming will have family. Uh, the, the initial ones will probably have family members in North America. So we're catching up. Those are two reasons why this immigration, the Ukrainian refugee immigration, should, in addition to just world uh, uh, sentiment, have some, uh, some resonance in terms of immigration treatment at this moment. Now, of course, and I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt. Of course, um, governments all have limited resources, but if there are legal paths for anyone, regardless of where they're coming from, they should take advantage of them. And there's there's no reason why Ukrainians shouldn't do the same, or people from Ukraine shouldn't do the same. That's a good point. It's a good point. We're not trying to disobey the law. We're not sneaking in. You know, these Ukrainians are coming lawfully the way the rules require them to come. So, but let me just again on the timing, get this timing issue uh, through this timing issue with you. So I mentioned the sympathy that the, uh, the world has for Ukrainians now as one factor. Another factor is the longer you wait, the more there will be people applying. And the more people apply, the longer the waiting times. What was something, for example, in the Canadian case that could, could be done in two days in our initial applications are now taking like two weeks to get done. And this is early in the game. Uh, I anticipate long backups. Uh, for example, biometrics is one of, you know, getting fingerprinted and uh, security clearance is one of the steps you have to go through in order to get into Canada or the United States. Getting an appointment to get your fingerprints done is now taking two, three weeks. And until you get that done, you won't get your visa. So already there's a lineup of people, and this is early in the game, and the longer we wait and the more people pour out of Ukraine, if it's three to five million people, that backlog is going to backlog the whole works of, you know, so now uh, for those reasons is the time to apply, even if it's more difficult, say in the Canadian case, even though two weeks from now it may be easier to get a, a visitor's visa to Canada than today, I would say that today is a better time to apply for Ukrainians than even two weeks or longer from now. The sooner the better, that's for everybody. Anyway, that's the whole subject of visitors. But the, the, the consulates or the embassies or the places where you would apply, the physical places where you would apply in Ukraine are you know, bombed or closed. Uh, what? How do people, apply physically okay good point good point so the application both in canada I, i'm going to treat the, the, this particular topic you know together canada and u.s because it's so similar sure in both canada and the u.s it can be done online 
in the Canadian case, you go on, you have to create your own portal, like which a lawyer can do for you, or you can do yourself. Mm-hmm. And then you upload an application with all the relevant documents. And uh, it, assuming you've provided everything that's needed, including answering all the questions, your application will be approved. And the, uh, the immigration service will advise you to make an appointment for a biometrics exam, the fingerprinting, and thereafter pick up your visa, which will be put into your passport for you to be able to travel uh, to Canada. In the US, it's something similar, it's online. The State Department has what's called a DS-160 form that you have to fill in. That can be done online. Usually you do it applying to a specific consulate so it might be Vienna, it might be Warsaw, it might be uh, you know Paris, London, wherever it is. And uh, basically, uh, it's a 20-page questionnaire that requires answers, you know, name, address, date of birth, place of birth, all that kind of stuff. In both cases, you're going to be answering the same questions. It is very important to be as accurate and detailed as required in the questionnaires. And the questionnaires will talk about your travel history. Um, Now, let's see if I got this right. Travel, I think it's travel history since birth, since 18 years of age onward, and your work history, year by year, every every job you had. And if you weren't working, then unemployed for what period of time. But you have to, these are details that these questionnaires will ask you that you have to fill in. And uh, so, so uh, that's the process. Is uh, in the U.S. case, you're going to fill it in uh, in this DS-160. They require a picture. You can do a selfie uh, if it, you know, depending on how well you do your surf your selfie. It'll work for Canada, and it usually it'll even work for the U.S. A headshot of each applicant, and you have to apply for each family member. So it's the wife and the two kids or whatever it is, right? That all three of them require these forms to be filled out. And uh, the ideal is they have a passport for each person and they have a birth certificate for the children and uh, possibly a marriage certificate for the, for the wife. Um, those are the basics. I can't think of what else they might need, but I think those are the basic ones. Let's say you don't have them. It's possible to get out, get the visa without even those, but you have to explain why you don't have them. Well, the war, I escaped. I didn't care about my documents. I was cared about, cared about my life as an explanation, but you have to provide an explanation. So I want uh, oh, sorry, sorry, to ask you a little bit more about the visitor visa process, because we alluded to this before we brought it up that the United States is now allowing Ukrainians to who, for example, a student whose uh, whose visa will be expiring to stay in the United States so they don't have to go back to a war zone. And I, I believe that uh, that will also give them the right to apply for a work permit. Is that correct? Yeah, so that's called temporary protected status. And yeah. as of, I think it's March 1st, if you were in the, might be March 2nd, I'm not sure of the exact date. If you were in the United States and uh, you, are, you are a Ukrainian with a Ukrainian passport, uh, and you were in uh, on that date in the United States and have been there since, um, you're eligible for what's called temporary protected status. I'm just going to give you all the details on that. Uh, <clears throat> There is a biometrics, uh, meaning fingerprinting requirement. There's a form I-812 that needs to be filed. Uh, The biometrics cost $85. The form I-812 costs $50. There's a employment form I-765 that has to be uh, filed. There's a $410 fee for that. And if you want to travel, you can even get a travel document uh, I-131, I, I-131 travel document. Uh, the names aren't so significant if you're not going to be doing it yourself as what's required. So basically, the procedure will be 
that uh, it's an application to a US uh, Citizenship and Immigration Service uh, site uh, where these documents are sent in um, and the payments. And uh, having sent in the payments, uh, you will get 18 months uh, temporary protected status, TPS status, which will include the work permit. And you will be free and you won't have to worry about uh, being in the US, extending your visa, or if your visa is expired or anything of that nature. It should help over 70,000 Ukrainians who are in the United States at this moment to solidify their status, meaning be in the US legally uh, by applying in this way. How long can a visitor, typical visitor visa, allow a person to stay in the United States? It's usually six months. So here's what I'm thinking, and this is why I wanted to ask you. I'm glad you're here because this is what's been kind of rattling around in my head. So it's supposing somebody gets a visitor visa approved and they come to their uncle or father or mother or whomever they're visiting, they're, they're, they have that visa because their intention or their stated intention is that I'm going to go back. But if they're here, what if they apply for the temporary protective status? Then is, is they that... won't be qualified for temporary protective okay. status. All right. But um, things can change. One can one change that could happen is they may introduce the ability to apply for a work permit or employment authorization document, is what it's called. Or uh, another thing they may agree to is like these are the current. At this moment, you can't apply for a work permit if you come in as a visitor, but they may uh, adopt a policy to allow people to do that. Or the other thing which you can do is you can extend your visitor's stay for another six months by applying before that visitor's period of authorized stay expires. So a person could apply for another six months and so on, assuming that they came in as a visitor and they're trying to stay until things settle back home and go home at the end of the period of authorized stay. Now for either the United States or Canada, if you don't know that you have, you have no contact with any relatives, you don't know if you have any, you've never been in touch with them, and let's say you've gotten yourself to Poland, is, is, the, is the reasonable advice or is the preferred advice to that person stay in, in Europe? No. Um, well, uh, I look at it this way. You're, looking, you're driving down the street. You got a green light, but the next light afterwards is red. What are you going to do? Do you stop and wait for all the lights to be green before you go? Or do you take the green? I say take the green. Whatever is open to you, take it. If you can get to Canada, go to Canada. If you can get to the States, go to the United States. If you got a multiple entry, uh, B1, B2 visa for the United States, that's a visitor's visa, take it and go, and go soon. Don't wait. Take it now. If you got something for Canada, same thing. You don't have to have a relative either in Canada or the United States to enter uh, either country. Even someone who has no relatives but has someone who's a friend uh, or acquaintance or a business colleague who's willing to apply for them to, uh, to write a letter of support saying, hey, uh, this is a friend of mine. I'm inviting him to come to Canada. I'm going to offer him a place to stay, a room and board or you know, whatever, uh, look after his expenses while he's here. That would open the door for that person to come to Canada. If they have no relative and no friend who will write a letter supporting them, the chances of them coming to Canada or the United States are slimmer unless they can show how they're going to support themselves in the United States or Canada when they do come in. If they've got money, and let's say they can show, well, I've got you know $10,000 or whatever in the bank or something like that, then even then that person could come. But if they have no money and no support, chances of getting permission to come in are less. But to address your question, Dan, more directly, 
you're asking about choosing between Europe and Canada or the United States. That, that's a choice that depends on, do you have any relatives or friends there? Maybe you have a, a place or an occupation that will be perfect for Europe, but maybe won't be good for Canada or the United States. Or maybe the circumstances are better for you because it's closer to Ukraine and you, you're planning to you know, keep the bridge and, and hopefully return sooner or whatever. These are personal calculations that you have to take into account in deciding where you're going to go. Also, the uh, circumstances being offered to you in the various countries differ. Uh, Britain has, uh, I understand, a fairly positive, uh, I think they introduced a three-year uh, visitors kind of a thing uh, program. Uh, Poland has been very generous in what they've offered. Uh, I know that all the countries in Europe appear to be offering various uh, forms of support. So you might want to canvas where are your best opportunities and decide is that the best thing for you. I just want to return though, if you'll allow me Dan, to other options other than visitors and the issue of refugees. So can we go into that? Please. Okay. I've already mentioned, I don't like refugee status uh, as an initial uh, thing to claim for North America. I don't know about Europe, I'm not an expert on Europe, so I'm not gonna talk about it. Yeah. Uh, the main problem with refugee status is when you come in and you say, I wanna make a claim for asylum in the United States, it's called asylum in the United States, or refugee status in Canada. They'll put a favor, uh, put in, in front of you a document that says, basically says, I hereby agree to be allowed to be deported unless I prove my refugee claim. And it's on that basis that I'm getting conditional status in the USA or in Canada. It's conditional entry. But the danger is you're agreeing that if you can't prove that refugee claim, you're out, brother. And it's very seductive because they offer you, you know, straight into a work permit and straight into Canada, at least into healthcare. Um, so a lot of people think, well, you know, like if I'm a visitor, I'm coming to the US, no work permit, no employment option, just I'm a visitor. So, you know, the, the refugee claim sounds much better, but that, that condition is very serious because, and you may think, wow, what are you talking about? Same with you. They're explaining, you know, they're, they're, they're running away from a war. They're, you know, there's a war going on. They're all refugees. All you have to say is you're Ukrainian and you're a refugee. You know, you shouldn't be able to get a refugee claim through. No, no, no. It's purposefully defined very narrowly. For example, Syrians, or others who were escaping war didn't necessarily uh, right away get a permission to be called refugees. A refugee, by definition, the legal, the, the legality of it is that's a person who's A, outside their country of origin, B, has a well-founded fear of persecution, C, by their country of origin, by the government of the country of their origin, the based on narrow criteria such as race, religion, political opinion, etc. And if the country has a part, or so let's take the case of Crimea, for example. When Crimea was invaded by the Russians, you think every every Ukrainian should be able to get a refugee claim? No, 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 because you could escape to another part of the country. Uh, and and uh, claim uh, you know live in another part a safe part of the country. There's so if the no Russian government is so if the Russian government is uh, if you qualify because the so, under the legal terminology because of what the right. Russian government is doing to you if you're Ukrainian it doesn't count because it's not the Ukrainian government doing it to you. Is that Correct. Right? That you're right on. Right on. Also, the fact that you travel through Poland to the United States or Canada could be argued against you. They could say, well, if you're a refugee, you know, the typical refugee is someone who 
takes a canoe and you know canoes across the Atlantic Ocean and all arrives exhausted on your shore with no clothes on. Not someone who flies over and you know for a visit to Canada or the United States. So they could argue, well, wait a minute, you had the chance to make a refugee claim in Poland. Why didn't you make it in Poland or Hungary or wherever you came from? And you're flying around Europe in airplanes, which some of them will be, because there's free air travel. Uh, some whiz airlines, for example, is offering 100,000 free flights all over Europe. Yeah. Um, so there are impediments to making the claim stick. And it's not uh, Ukrainian as a group. That's not good enough. But if, let's say, you're a gay and you're escaping, this is an example, it's not Ukraine, but it's a good example. Sure. If you're gay or a homosexual in Russia and you come to Canada or the United States and you claim refugee status, that's a good claim because they don't tolerate gays in Russia. That's an example of a good claim. So yeah. is your group being uh, targeted? Now, if you're an officer in the Ukrainian army, and now Russia has taken over the country. That's a good refugee claim. If you're a police officer, uh, you know, if you are a, uh, you know, a political leader like Zelensky, and you come to the United States, that's going to be a good political uh, refugee uh, asylum claim. But you know, if you're like you, you and me, we're just well. Lawyers are another example of someone that probably would succeed in a refugee claim. But if you're an average Joe, you know, like we are, otherwise. Not so easy, not so easy. So I'm leery about claiming refugee status at the border because of, it's a trap. It's a trap. It's a last resort. It's an, uh, but everybody thinks of oh, refugee claim right away. We're all refugees. But it's a, you know, it's a, a decision of last resort. Only the last resort would I do. Now, that word carries a lot of legal weight, and if you if you 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 put your weight on the wrong spot, you know the floorboards could fall from under you. I guess. Yeah. Let me give you an example of someone that I, I encountered recently. I'm not going to disclose a person's name or any identity, but the person had seven children, young children, and his wife and children were in Poland, and he was trying to get the, the family over to Canada. Now, the problem, and he, you know, his thinking was, and he, that was pretty good thinking, actually. If I get my family over to Canada, A, they'll have work permits, and, you know, they claim refugee status. A, they'll have work permit for my wife. There were two women there, by the way, uh, mother or whatever. Plus, B, all my children, there were seven children, will go to school for free. And they'll all have health care. What could be better than that? You know, that's way better than a, a visitor's, uh, you know, visa. Yeah. Okay, they would have work permits, but they wouldn't have all the rest of it. So now I argued against that for that family. I said, no, that's, the, that's a bad move. That's a bad move. But then later I learned, wait a minute, this guy's not just any old Joe. This guy was a major economic leader in Ukraine. And uh, he had spoken out against the Russians before the invasion. So I changed my mind. And in that case, I said, yeah, this is a good, that's a good case, uh, refugee claim in Canada. But the problem was, how do you get over to Canada? To get over to Canada, we can't say, hey, I'm a refugee, take me to Canada. Canada's not gonna pay for a ticket to Canada for seven people, seven kids and three others. Uh, you have to pay the cost of a visitor's visa. You have to come over as a visitor and then make a refugee claim. And the problem with a visitor's uh, visa is you have to pay for all the, you know, a visitor's visa to the United States, by the way, you have to pay for it. It's not free, you have government fees. I can't remember how much, it's probably 300 or 400. But Canada said, oh, uh, Ukrainians will be exempt from having to pay the fees. So some people, Ukrainians, tried to file a visitor's claim only to find out, wait a minute, it says, pay your fee. You know, how are you going to pay your fee? 
So we had to photocopy the website saying it's visa free, meaning no fee, and include that in the, it says, uh, I am exempt from paying the fee. And then what's the basis of exemption? A copy of the website saying refugees can come for free. That's how they can get them over here. But this guy had another problem. The problem was he had no money outside the country. Now, how are you going to get the, you know, how are you going to get the family, even now that it's free to apply for the visas, to Canada? You know, the airfares. Did he have any family in Canada or friends? None. How are you going to get them over here? He had friends in the United States. Now, he had two visas that the, 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 the uh, adults had visas, visitors' visas to the United States. But they didn't have visitors' visas to Canada. So I was arguing with them, you should go to the United States because you've got the visas. You can go on a plane right now. Go, go. You know, the green light's there. Go. But he said, well, what about my family? You know, like, what about all the kids? I, you know. And so there was, uh, now, it's still in the process. This case is not resolved yet. But I'm hoping what will happen is his American friends uh, will collect the money necessary or he'll find the money necessary to apply for the visitors' visas in Canada and then the refugee claim at the border of entry. So before we, we get, before we conclude, I, I want to talk to you about avoiding scams because I, I know there's, you know, in some communities there are uh, notary publics or Ukrainian, it's notarius. Uh, you know, there's, I know there's other similar analogous things in other groups, other communities. Um, you know, obviously not everybody who can who wants to emigrate to the United States or Canada has, like you were saying, has the money to do so. There are application fees. There's all kinds of different scenarios like that. I want to, some, I just want to hear some tips about how do you, one, how do you avoid scams? Two, who do you turn to? And do you know of any organizations that are trying to help people for free? Okay, that's a tough subject for me to cover. Uh, I, ha I have some information about that, but I'd have to dig it out. Let's see if I can dig that out. Well, what we can do is this, and maybe maybe this will make it easier for you. Yeah. As far as avoiding scams go, you want to talk to a law firm, a reputable law firm with licensed firms, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's one. Um, as far as... Uh, as far as charitable organizations or nonprofits or non-government organizations or even legal aid type things, if there are any you know and you want to share that information, we can add that information down at the bottom. Oh, that'd be super. That would be really good. Video. Uh, you know, I, I would say this. Uh, uh, an organization like the one you belong to, uh, Ukrainian-Canadian Ukrainian Congress Committee of America is a reputable organization, someone to uh, listen to in terms of advice. The World Congress of Ukrainians is a reputable organization worth listening to. Uh, church leaders, uh, you know, priests, uh, bishops, and so on, they're reputable. They're worth uh, whatever the congregation, by and large, I think there are people that are worth listening to and taking advice from. Red Cross, the UN, any US government agency, any Canadian government agency, they're reputable. In terms of uh, working with uh, uh, immigration consultants, beware of people who are either, who are not lawyers, but offering immigration advice. And in the case of Canada, there are immigration consultants, that's a category that are capable of giving professional advice and are regulated by the Canadian government. In addition to immigration lawyers, they're one grade low, lower than an immigration lawyer because they can only give advice in immigration matters. So unlike the Americans where there is no such thing, you have to be an immigration lawyer. In Canada, you can be an immigration consultant and still do immigration cases. Um, just a, something just to know. Um, but listen, if it's a 
first of all, if it's a problem, a guarantee, if it's 100% guaranteed, that's like 100% guaranteed, you're going to be in trouble, don't bother. You know, there's no guarantee in the immigration. <laughs> it's like, if they, a lot of clients will say, you know, I'll pay the money, but is there a guarantee? I, I, I like to answer back, listen, can I guarantee that you'll be alive and I'll be alive tomorrow morning? Now, there's no guarantee in life. It's, right. you have to be leery of people who offer you extraordinary um, results and want high fees. And, you know, if it's Google too good to people, be true, it probably is. Google people do not pay anyone without Google. They're Googling their name first and finding out who are they. Well, I can tell I can tell my viewers that in Illinois, for example, uh, the Illinois uh, bar or the, the, the board that the, the body that governs licenses in Illinois has a website. Uh, I can add that here. Um, I'm sure that other jurisdictions have it too. And you can put in a, a practitioner's name and it'll tell you, are they licensed? Do they have insurance and so forth? So yeah. it, it, I, if you need to research someone, I guess you can. <laughs> and there's there's Google, there are other resources too to make sure you're looking at the official source material to, to know that you're talking with a lawyer who's got a license and who's the real deal. Well, Andy, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me on this topic. I hope we can stay in touch. And if there are any new developments, we can we can convene again. Great. Uh, just want to uh, share my e email address, info at paceimmigration.com and Slava Ukraini. Heroyam Slava. Ukrainska. Nezalezhne radio.